Environmental, social, and corporate governance information. What is it? ESG is relevant to a firm's valuation, but does not fall under traditional accounting standards. So who decides on what ESG standards are? At the moment, everybody! The reality is that today it's a bit of a zoo. Here is Peter Backer, the CEO of the World Business Council, who we heard from in episode one. There's more than 600 ESG rankings and ratings. There's more than four and a half thousand ESG KPIs. You know, just look at the financial accounting. I mean, how many numbers are relevant? So we need to compress and standardize more. There are more challenges than climate. So how do we expand the KPIs to all the SDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals? And we need to make it mandatory. We we must stop the notion to think that on a voluntary disclosure basis, this will get the attention or the traction or the impact, therefore, that the world needs. I'm Kanika Seigel. And I'm Nell McKenzie. And in this episode of Euromoney's Treasury and Turbulence, we take a look at ESG ratings. What they are, what they're not and everything in between. This podcast is supported by City Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 98 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change. Around 30 trillion of well-meaning dollars have been invested in ESG-themed assets, which all rely in some way on ESG ratings, according to the Global Sustainable Investment Review. If you're an asset manager and you're creating an ESG fund, you need to put some highly rated ESG assets in there. And if there's a stock that you like, you can get that company rated. The investor pays for it, and it can cost a lot. Some of the companies we spoke to said that they charge anywhere between 15,000 to 300,000 euros to rate one company in terms of ESG. There are over 100 ratings providers that produce ESG information on companies. Some of them are well-known, like Bloomberg, FTSE, MSCI, Sustainalytics and Thomson Reuters. And it's an extremely competitive and dynamic market. Providers are racing to achieve critical mass, with numerous mergers and takeovers in recent years. Some ratings companies have joined forces to try to grow their businesses and increase their influence. There are also specialist data providers such as S&P's TrueCost, providing carbon and brown revenue data, GRESB, which measures sustainability performance in real estate, ISS, which looks at corporate governance, climate and responsible investing solutions, and Ecovadis, who we'll be speaking to later. Here is Hans Ulrich Beck. Global Head of Research at Sustainalytics, one of the biggest and most commonly used ESG ratings companies, to tell us how they put their ratings together. We look at exposure, the relevance of a certain ESG issue to become material for a company. And on the other side, we look at how the company is is managing the issue by looking at certain corporate practices or or performance uh, data that the company discloses. And for every I mean, in fact, down to the sub-industry, we have identified ESG issues. I think you can think of carbon emissions from operations, health and safety, etc. And so we define a set of issues that we consider to be most relevant. And then we, we have a way of weighing these depending on how relevant we think these are for the company. But what one company rates highly, another might not. According to recent research from MIT and the University of Zurich, 
credit ratings agencies that measure financial stability have a 0.99 correlation. Whereas ESG ratings companies have an average correlation of around 0.61. This is because biases are inherent when assessing ESG goals. Here is Jeroen Bosch from NN Investment Partners, who you heard from in our first episode. So firstly, you can sometimes notice a size bias in the ESG data. Large companies have on average a higher ESG score compared to smaller companies. So as a result, a smaller renewable energy company can score lower on ESG compared to a large traditional oil company, which might feel a bit counterintuitive when we're assessing sustainability. Uh, Secondly, there's often in a methodology some form of sector neutrality. In every sector, even in sectors like tobacco, weaponry, traditional oil and gas, there are always companies that score low and companies that score high and above average on ESG. So we can see companies with an above average ESG rating that are actually active in areas that are not sustainable. Thirdly, ESG ratings are fairly stale over time. Today's ratings are still fairly comparable to the rating of that same company three years ago. Sounds a bit like it's luck of the draw, depending on the ratings agency that ranks the company. To demonstrate this, we will now play Ratings Roulette. This is Ratings Roulette! Right, what's what's ratings roulette now? I'm going to give you some quiz questions, and you're going to be an ESG ratings provider. Right, totally got it. Which of these companies, Kanika, would you give a higher grade? This is MSCI grades. Okay. BP or Netflix? I mean, to me, that seems quite obvious. BP is an oil and gas company. Netflix is a tech company, so you'd think that their business is probably quite quite highly rated in terms of ESG. So I'd say um, if I was MSCI, I'd give Netflix a higher ESG ratings. Incorrect. (laughs) What? Aw, too bad. Netflix is described as a laggard. BP has a triple B rating, which is average. Netflix is not a leader on any of the key issues that we evaluated for its industry, it says. Okay, so... That's weird. That seems so controversial in that if you're an oil and gas company and the potential for like an oil spill will have a huge environmental impact, right? Don't worry, Kanika. Sustainalytics agrees with you. <laughs> yeah! You win! Sustainalytics rates Netflix as a low risk score. Okay. So these are lower numbers. The lower number you get, the better you do. BP or Shell? You're comparing apples to apples, right? Yeah. So it's a bit easier. Because Shell, I think, have had a more recent oil spill lower. Incorrect. No point. Um, in fact, <laughs> Shell is rated higher than Netflix. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? So Shell is rated A. Okay. Uh, it's got an A rating for MSCI. Don't worry, Canada. <laughs> you win. Sustainalytics agrees with you. So now let's bring another tech company into the mix. It's Facebook. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So can you compare Facebook and Netflix? So I would say that, I mean, it should be pretty obvious, right? Like Facebook has been in the media recently, Cambridge Analytica, all the stuff about data collection. I would say without a doubt, Facebook would have a much lower grade than Netflix. What? Triple B. What? Aww. Too bad. Same what? credit as Facebook and BP are up there, man. Okay, now, which which ratings agency is this? <laughs> that is MSCI. You don't right, agree okay, with fine. MSCI. So at least, okay. Now, let's bring the last one in here, which is H&M. Okay, so H&M with their ESG. So I'd say quite high. I'd say definitely, like, high investment grade, double A. That's right! Yay! 
<laughs> but according to who? Um, MSCI. You guys agree finally. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. right. And also Sustainalytics. Ah, okay, right. Um, their total ESG risk score is 17. Social risk score is a 9.1, which is lower than Netflix, but higher than BP. Wow, okay, interesting. Social risk score. It's all those supply chains. <laughs> yeah. That was Ratings Roulette. So what's the point in ESG ratings? As Hans Ulrich says, these differences are valuable precisely because when it comes to ESG investors, they aren't all looking for the same thing. I think I would maybe caution about the expectation that these ratings will fully align going forward in the way that uh, credit ratings do. ESG goals should work more like equity research, he says. So one analyst will put a buy on a bank, another won't, because they're looking at different criteria. You trust that analyst. And in fact, you pay for their point of view because their judgment reinforces your own belief in that company. Remy Briand, the head of ESG at the ratings provider MSCI, explains there is another reason that ratings agencies differ. If you analyze CSR reports or if worse, you send surveys, uh, essentially you hear only one voice, which is the corporate view. So, so you need to look at what the companies are doing, but um, you have to look for evidence. So today in our rating, for example, 45% of the inputs that gets into the rating are not coming from company self-disclosed information. But not everyone is doing that. Remy says that there is a lot of noise in the ratings agency space because it is early days. It's normal that there is noise, there is views, there are claims. We'll, we'll see as times progress. But a lot of people are making a lot of claims. And, and quite honestly, in a new field, a lot of people just don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and it's normal, right? It's, it's, uh, you, you have to take your chance. But all these different points of view have consequences. Because it means that companies that are rated may have no incentive to change. Get a bad mark from one ratings agency, no problem. There will be another one that will rave about you. So this makes it harder for investors to vote en masse with their feet. There is a certain degree of complacency with the systems that currently exist. And retailers and brands uh, seem to be largely content with the current systems of auditing, social audits, where they have their own brand auditors or third-party auditors who go in. Here's human rights lawyer Aruna Kashyap again, who lays part of the blame for the Rana Plaza collapse on this complacency. They've proved that there is a certain degree of complacency that's extremely dangerous. And I think brands have paid heavily and workers have paid with their lives. And this shouldn't happen. And what's more, we found out that for the banks and large investors, ESG ratings are not all that important right now. We as a bank don't rely at all on those external rating agencies. In fact, we've never used them. We have a full-blown research team, uh, both the asset management side as well as... It's a quick way to have an idea first. You should be very cautious as an investor to make automatic decisions based on EUG scores. And so we do dig in deeper ourselves. Then we do our own analysis. But we actually go through our own due diligence. Internal review process. Yes, these rating agencies are necessary. They provide a threshold. They provide their metrics, they use data to help the clients, doesn't necessarily mean that they are doing all the work or they will do all the work. Uh, my name is Boris Kalai. I am heading trade and supply chain finance business for Bank of America for Europe, Middle East and Africa. ESG rating companies have resources to a number of data so that they can help their company's supply chains to have an ESG metric that they can measure. And I think this is absolutely necessary. However, 
if you are talking smaller size corporate, they might not have the access to these rating companies, so they might need to perform their own due diligence. It's also the corporate's responsibility to make sure that they look at their supply chain so that they provide their banks the necessary data. It's also the bank's responsibility to make sure that as much as possible, they influence their clients just to push them and to make sure that they have an ESG focus when they are looking at their trade finance requirements. So ESG goals are the corporate's responsibility, not the investors or financiers? Kind of. Here's Barish again. When you look at my area of expertise, trade finance, it is the clients that know their supply chain finance much better than the financing companies and the banks. While we help our clients and we discuss with them how we can make sure that ESG is at the center of their discussions in terms of supply chain, they know it much, much better. And banks usually do not have a saying in terms of evaluating a company's KPIs and ESG ratings. But what we are trying to do with them is to make sure that when they're looking at their trade finance requirements, make sure that they have an ESG lens, make sure that they also provide the bank with sufficient information about their suppliers. And then based on this information, bank can work with their clients to offer products to them. So banks do not have the direct responsibility and direct angle to comment on their ESG rating, ESG standings, because it is the clients, it's our companies that know much, much better than the financiers. Makes sense, I guess. <laughs> well, here's Hervé Dutay, Chief Sustainability Officer for BNP Paribas. He agrees with Barish. He says that at the end of the day, every company is different and will have a completely different set of ESG goals. We are here to guide the borrower into selecting KPIs that represent the elephant in the room. Companies report their raw materials that come from uh, verified non-deforested areas or not. That's what you want to address, you know, for commodity producers, let's say. If you're in the mining industry, you want to address water intensity, injury rates. If you're in the fast food business, social practices from, you know, pay rates to benefits, where you source your beef, uh, those type of issues. So each sector has its own big issues. So banks do have influence over their clients' ESG goals, but this is through private direct contact with them? Apparently, yes. Because the thing is, if, if corporates don't meet their ESG goals, they won't always be punished by the banks. Here's Berju Sinel, the head of Propositions for Global Trade and Receivables Finance at HSBC. Your kind of starting point is not to provide financial incentives. Your starting point is to provide, to be able to cater a program or a facility or a transaction that caters the client's sustainability goals or KPIs. As they move up in their goals, you would need to provide them a differential, which obviously becomes a pricing differential. But your starting point is not the financial incentives. That shouldn't be why the client is actually interested in your program. Your aim should be to prove them up in their sustainability performance for them to move up their KPIs and you come in as a financing partner to be able to give them the financial incentives to be able to do so. So there are examples in the market and we're looking at some examples as well. There is no um, deal right now within the trade finance space that's in public domain that I can share further. So corporate set goals for ESG, but no matter how terribly they fail, they get the same interest rates on debt as the greenest, nicest, cuddliest companies? Well, there are some products popping up, right, where interest rates are directly affected by ESG goals. So banks can offer sustainability-linked loans. 
or ESG-linked loans, where issuers can lower the cost of borrowing by working with banks that integrate a company's sustainability performance into their lending criteria. So last November, for instance, Prada became the first luxury fashion brand to issue a sustainability-linked loan with Credit Agricole, where repayments were dependent on ESG goals linked to KPIs. And before that, in April 2019, HSBC announced a sustainable supply chain finance programme with Walmart, which pegs the supplier's financing rate throughout the chain to its sustainability performance. So in supply chain finance, this can have an effect on all of the companies that the larger corporations use in their supply chain, many of whom are too small to be rated by one of these ESG ratings companies. Right. And as more attention is paid to the supply chain, new ideas and solutions are taking hold in the ESG ratings industry. Like EcoVadis. Okay, good morning. So I'm uh, Pierre Theller. I'm the uh, co-founder of uh, EcoVadis. A ratings company that focuses just on the supply chain. ESG rating agencies are all focusing on publicly listed companies. We are rating today 60,000 companies. Most of them are private. Most of them are SMEs. So... How do you find information on private companies? We use the mandate of our corporate customers. We tell their suppliers, you know, if you want to do business with uh, Unilever, you know, we need to understand your ESG practices, policies, practices, procedures, which we combine with, you know, an artificial intelligence-based tool to collect uh, big data volumes from NGOs and stakeholders and trade unions and so on. This moves the process away from a tick box exercise. In this case, firms have to figure out how they will take care of workers, look after the environment and make sure proper management standards are in place throughout their supply chain. So we see indeed there is pushback. Industries start to see the limitation of this tick-the-box auditing where you only ask companies to confirm they're not using child labour, they did not have human rights violation. We took another approach. We are assessing the management system, the continuous improvement management system of companies. And they work with activists. We are taking into account the feedback of key stakeholders, which report information, and even in countries like China, for example, on environmental spillage, health and safety accidents, human rights violations, and so on. They use artificial intelligence to gather all the information they're looking for by harvesting this information from websites. So all of that data that Danny at Microfinance Opportunities is collecting, this is the type of information that Pierre-Francois at Ecovadis uses to influence supply chain finance. Yep, the more information that gets out there, the better the tools everyone has at their disposal to rate, quantify, characterize, nail down exactly what is and what is not a sustainable investment. But the point is that the whole entire ecosystem, as we've shown, is pretty fragmented. So at this stage in the whole ESG supply chain finance evolution, something more regulation will help. Here's Peter Backer again from the World Business Council. The task force for climate-related financial disclosures, set of recommendations. Companies need to disclose in a standardized way their climate-related risks. They need to be able to demonstrate that in all layers of the organizations, in their governance, they manage these risks. And they need to have a strategic scenario, what will happen to their business model in a two-degree world or in a carbon-constrained world. It will only work if all companies use it and truly do it in a comparable then capital markets, banks or investors will be able to say, yep, this company is doing a better job in managing those risks than another company and therefore should attract a lower cost of capital. The TCFD is due this year, but that won't solve for everything. 
Ratings agencies say that they have a role to play. They could solve some of these disparities themselves. Here's Hans Ulrich again. I think that the industry would benefit from more clearly articulating their perspective on the issue. But at this moment, there's no, say, industry group representing really ESG service providers as, as such. I I believe it debate would certainly benefit by, by us having maybe more consistent perspective that we bring to the table that maybe colors some of the commentary in a, in a way that we find appropriate. The more we know about a company, the more the investors, banks, and customers can demand the firm behave better on all of its ESG goals. But we're not talking just about voluntary disclosure here. Nope. There is an insatiable need for more ESG information, whether or not a company is willing to give it up. Big data, satellite feeds from space, social media platforms. All of these advances in technology are changing corporate disclosure. Themes we will explore in the next episode of Treasury and Turbulence. But for now, here's the in-house view, presented by Courtney Lawrence, Managing Director, Sustainable Banking and Corporate Transitions at City. Hi, I'm Courtney Lawrence, and today I will be speaking to City's resident expert, Jessica Cavalletto, who works in trade sales. And in this episode, Jessica and I will be discussing how banks like City interact with ESG ratings companies and how this will affect funding costs and opportunities for our corporate clients in the future. So how does City work with ESG ratings agencies? Sustainable supply chain finance works slightly differently as compared to other products of the bank, where the solution is linked to the ESG performance of our client typically large multinationals, public-rated companies. In the case of supply chain finance, the solution is linked to the ESG performance of our client suppliers, typically SMEs, not publicly rated, located all over the world. So in developing a sustainable solution, we are working or evaluating to work not only with ESG rating agencies, but also with a number of other players, from international local NGOs to multilateral development institutions to standards institutions and ESG data science companies. Um, We want to make sure that we create a solid and reputable foundation and a framework that can work for our clients and that can work for City. Do you think the ESG ratings world will evolve to account for the smaller companies in the supply Yes, I think, and and I think more and more that will be incorporated into the the normal rating agencies. I think there won't be distinction between ESG and the rating agency. I think it will all be one rating for the company. Do you have your own internal and independent means to measure ESG and sustainability goals for your corporate clients? So. Each solution and each facility has to go through city internal review process for ESG methodology and framework. However, we believe validation of ESG performance should come from an independent third-party provider, especially given the complexity, the geographical footprint, and the variety of our client supply chains. These are some of the reasons why, again, we really underline the importance and we seek to work with third-party experts, including NGOs, development institutions, as mentioned before. And how easy is it to create ESG standards in an industry that is still evolving? It's not easy. Um, ESG standards can be uh, industry-specific or even product-specific. They can vary by country, by market, and clients themselves have different standards. 
There are, of course, common denominators, typically non-negotiable if you think about no child labor or reduction of CO2 emissions, just to name the most common. But we are also seeing very different approaches to ESG, at least from the client side. But I also think that creating common standards is only one side of the problem. The other one is, how do you measure these standards to be able to show and report progress? I think this is another significant challenge. Thanks, Jessica, for a very thought-provoking discussion. In our next episode, we will be speaking to Mawish Jangda within Cities Trade Sales on how technology is transforming the supply chain.